On this episode of The James Quandall Show. Present. I wasn't living in the past and I wasn't consumed by the future. And it felt good to write that. And so I decided to write another sentence about what I was grateful for and then another. And what dawned on me, if I can find something to be grateful for in my worst situation, life's not so bad and I can really utilize this. In 2012, Craig Stanlin made a choice that would cost him everything. After exploiting the warranty policy of one of the largest tech companies in the world for almost a year, the FBI finally knocked on his door. He was arrested and sentenced to two years of federal prison, followed by three years of supervised release. And he was ordered to pay $834,000 in restitution. He lost his wife, his homes, his cars, his career, and even his identity. He wanted nothing more than to die. A well-timed prison visit from his best friend of over 30 years turned his life around. Today, Craig is a best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and reinvention architect. He works one-on-one with clients to empower them to break free from their self-imposed mental prisons so they can reinvent their lives with passion, purpose, fulfillment, and meaning. His book, Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison, is available on Amazon. Yeah, so you were you were just kind of talking about the the James Altucher show, and I am curious to know your thoughts because that's been sort of like an experiment, and that's what that's what gave me the courage to start this show because I was like, well, I've been on his show, and I didn't completely embarrass myself. I might as well start my own show. And you haven't embarrassed yourself at all because I've been loving the episodes. But you and James together are, and it's funny, I'm treating them. So I know that a couple of other folks are doing the same thing with James and I haven't started those yet. I'm treating yours like a Netflix series. Right now, I'm on the James Q. I am on James Condell's episode list and I'm going to see them through all the way to the end. But I love observing someone learn in real time with somebody. There is so much value to that for me, where I just find my my own brain as I'm listening, you know, maybe I'm cleaning the house, maybe I'm doing something, I've got it on the background, but I'm like, you could say something, and I wish I could give you a specific example, but I'm probably going to blank on it. But, you know, you might say something, and I was like, I can do this in my business. I can do that in my business, like something you say, and it what I come up with is completely different than what you're talking about. But it's that observation of learning in real time opens up a level of creativity in myself that I love. And so I've been loving those episodes. I love that you just launched your podcast as a result of doing that with James. And I think that's a testament to what you've been learning and doing and your interviewing skills and what, you know, you've had a couple of episodes, one specifically where they really, you guys drill down onto interviewing, where you interviewed a couple of folks in real time. When you call, when he called up, he's like, oh, these guys are on, they're on Facebook Live right now. Let me just chat with them. Yeah. Talk, talk about being afraid. If you're kind of put in the hot seat there with uh, Dave Kirpin and uh, it's like, hey, you're going to be interviewing this guy, someone who I had been following on Clubhouse, that I had been joining his rooms, that I just would love to have been in his orbit. And then now all of a sudden I'm talking with him and nervous as can be. And I hadn't prepared anything. I had no clue that's what we were going to be doing. Those mentorship calls, what's really neat and why I love them and why I think it's resonating with people who are listening to them is they're unscripted. We call up. We have no clue what we're going to be talking about. I may have a few things down that I want to update him on. 
but it's just completely off the cuff, unrehearsed, just we go where we go. And that's why I've grown so much in the last couple of months since doing this, just by sort of being in an uncomfortable situation. And um, I have to say what I love so much about your story, Craig, is how you've been able to blossom and become the person you are today through discomfort and against potential odds. I mean, in your book, I loved your book. And for the listener, I'll leave a, a, a link to his book in the, the show notes, but it was a page turner. Talk about writing. You have a gift. It's unbelievable. I read a lot, and I read a lot of fiction and nonfiction. And this was a nonfiction book that the, tur- the pages turned as cleanly and quickly as an as a fiction book like a like a thriller i mean but it's your real life it's unbelievable and i'm not going to rehash your entire you know last you know five ten years life story on this episode because i think james altucher did a phenomenal job of that on his podcast so i'll make sure i link to the episode there in the show notes and you should definitely listen to that and you should definitely pick up the book i'm just so impressed i have a whole notebook here down of of thoughts of different disciplines that you've developed i'm just so impressed i gotta say i'm blown away and thank you so much for the kind words it really when i when i hear feedback like that you know i mean this book took six and a half years to produce and just like you said a lot of discomfort so getting feedback like that and knowing that it reached someone makes it all worth it you know, really, really, really does. I hope I don't throw a monkey wrench at this, but I just have to ask one question. Out of your episodes with James, what do you think is, if you had to pick one thing that you've learned that rises above all the others, what do you think that is? I would say do the things today to make me the person I want to become tomorrow, right now, and not being afraid of them. And acting as if because the whole series is called make you a millionaire and i've said this multiple times i don't really care about being a millionaire it's not interesting to me it's more so i want to learn the skills that it would take to be able to become a millionaire and i think that's what i'm learning is it's it's more so about i i I should have thought about this before but i think the one thing is really just acting as if you are who you want to become and then meeting yourself there in the future to, like by starting today. I think that is so important in everybody's life. And that's something that I work with my clients on and something that I also try to do to the to the best of my ability in my everyday life is just really, it's having the goal, having a target. You know, I'm not going to get in a car without knowing where I'm going, but the goal is not the end result. It's who I become along the way. That's the reward and that's the treasure. If I happen to publish my book or deliver the TEDx or whatever may other goal I may have, that's icing on the cake. But it's like, who did I have to become to be able to do those things? And that is because those things, while you know, the book will live forever in some form, maybe, hopefully, but who I had to become, those things are a part of me now. That's intrinsic to me. And I can bring those forward into every other area of my life, personal relationships, family, you know, I mean, uh, business, anything. So what are you really proud of? You've done a lot of really great work. I mean, publishing a book, writing a book is its own feat. And I think you mentioned that in your book, you said, you know, writing the book is phase one, and then there's phase two, which is promoting the book. And I I think uh, 
you know, I make this joke a lot because one of my businesses is helping authors get their books published and market them. And a lot of times they're like, well, you know, I didn't, this book, it's a, it's a, you know, it's on the, the Wall Street Journal bestsellers and I just didn't really like it that much. And, you know, I, I'm spending 10 years working on mine. It's going to be perfect. And I'm like, well, you know, like it's not best written book on the Wall Street Journal necessarily. It's the best selling book. And like, how are you actually going to go out there and spread this message so it can help people? And it, it you, I think you even wrote this in your book. It's just helping one person is a good enough reason, but I'm sure everyone really wants to help more than one. Like, I mean, it, like, do you have a goal for, for what your vision is with sharing your story of who you're going to help and how many people and, and how, like, how big, like if you were dreaming really big, what would that look like? This is a great question. And I'm going to have to answer it in a couple of different ways. When I first started writing that book, all I really did want to do was help one person. That was the fuel that carried me through all of the ups and downs was to help one person. Then when it started coming into more fruition, when it started becoming more of a reality, like this thing's going to get published, I realized that it, you know I still want to help that one person, but I want to help that one person times a multiple. And you know, however many that would be, I I don't know, but if I was to dream big, I mean, you know, I'd love to hit like the 500,000 copies sold. You know, that would be, that would be a very large audacious goal for me. I would love that, you know, and on, on the way to getting there, you know, I'd have all my different milestones, let's say 25,000, 50,000, 100,000, all the way, all the way up. And I love having those numerical goals when it is related to the book, because it does give me that target. And who do I have to become to be able to sell that many books? The real value in this is when I get a message on a social media channel or through email of just like, hey, I was in a really tough spot and your book helped me. That's worth more than anything in the world. And that's just that one person. And it's just so humbling to hear some of the things that people will come to me with about their own suicidal thoughts and about the crap that they've gone through in their own life, some really hard stories. And that puts things in perspective for me. It keeps me very humbled and very honest. Yeah. So speaking of gratitude, how how do you start feeling grateful when things aren't good in your life? It's like so easy to be grateful when things are going really well. It's like pick name name whatever you want. I'm grateful for a hundred things. But what about when things aren't good? How do you do that? It takes a lot. It takes a lot to go inside and to for me, it took presence. When my gratitude practice started when I was in federal prison, and I was so consumed with the past and the choices that I had made. And because of those choices that I made, my future now was completely uncertain. You know, who's going to hire a convicted felon? Who's going to date a convicted felon? Well, you know, when I have background checks to rent an apartment, like the mind is just racing with all of those things. And I walked out of one of our buildings at about probably six o'clock in the morning. And I have to say the prison that I was in, uh, Otisville Federal Prison, sits atop uh, what's called One Mile Drive. So it's pretty pretty high up on this mountain. You made it sound pretty nice, really. I mean, like the, the sunrise and the sunset. I mean, it sounded not too bad, the view. <laughs> we actually, so my fellow inmates and I, would. there were some times where you'd have, we, there were about 116 of us. And there were times where I'd have to say there'd be close to 100 people that were outside watching the sunset, that it was that pretty, that people just stopped and watched the sunset. And, you know, we'd all look at each other 
And you've got all sorts of different people there. Some very successful, wildly successful uh, billionaire. We had a billionaire that I was with. But, you know, we just look around and go, you know, if you knock this prison down, you could put a really nice resort here just because of the sunrises and sunsets. That's how pretty they were. And so I, I walked out of one of our buildings and there was just one of those gorgeous sunrises. And I went to the library and it just, it flowed naturally. You know, it just flowed naturally to say, I'm grateful that I saw this morning's sunrise. And I realized that it just, it was very, again, present. I wasn't living in the past and I wasn't consumed by the future. And I just, it felt good to write that. And so I decided to write another sentence about what I was grateful for. And then another, and what dawned on me was if I can find something to be grateful for in my worst situation, life's not so bad and I can really utilize this. And that is something, gratitude is something that was over seven years ago. I do my best not to miss a day. I know that I strung together probably close to 1300 days in a row without missing my gratitude practice. And do you write it you write it down every time? There's a couple things I do. I do I do want to write it down. It's one of the first things when I grab my journal in the morning when I start writing, I start with my gratitude practice because I think that's a really nice way to start. So I write it down and what I'll try to do is I'll take one of the things that I'm grateful for and I ask myself why? Why am I grateful for this? Because it can become very list building. And it can sometimes feel rote to me if I just keep saying I'm grateful for X, I'm grateful for Y, I'm grateful for Z. So why am I grateful for this? Why am I grateful that I'm sitting on my balcony in my apartment in Brooklyn, New York? You know why I am? Um, because my friend was kind enough to sublease this place to me when I got out of prison. I'm grateful that I have this person in my life. I'm grateful that I have the money to afford to live here. And it just starts going into so many different avenues. And that why has been such a powerful, powerful component to my practice. And have you found any use in sort of solving gratitude problems? Like if there's something in your life, let's say paying taxes, it's no one likes to pay taxes, but you can be grateful for paying your taxes be because of the fact that you made money or your business is doing well, potentially, and things like that. Have you ever done anything like that for gratitude? I do. And what, the way I actually look at it is it's, it's a form of gratitude, but it's also choice and how important choice is. It's very easy to sit here and say that we, you know, I, I've gotten into arguments with people like, not everything's a choice. You have to pay your taxes. And I said, no, you're actually choosing to pay your taxes. There are consequences if you don't pay your taxes. For me to be able to say, I choose to do laundry. Nobody likes doing laundry either, but I choose to do laundry as opposed to I have to do laundry is much more empowering. And that gives me a sense of gratitude around that because I've now changed the narrative from have to choose. And it just feels much more empowering. That's a great way to look at it. And that, do you ever find a problem that you can't choose? You have to do it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Like you don't have a choice in the matter. I haven't found one yet. I haven't found one of those yet because I really do believe that everything is a choice. I really, I genuinely believe that everything is a choice. There's very difficult choices and it comes down again to the consequences. And so then you're, you're in a much different place then evaluating the consequences of that choice instead of being frustrated and angry that you have to do something, right? 
Right. And that's to, to be able to remove those mini resentments, to remove the mini resentments out of the day gives me much more of a sense of agency and self-sovereignty over my day that I'm choosing to, I'm choosing to do the dishes. I'm choosing to do, you know, I'm thinking of all the things that I don't like doing, you know, the administrative work on my business. And that actually could be a bit of a gratitude problem. I'm grateful I have administrative work to do on my business because if I didn't, that means I'm not doing anything. Yeah. It's one of the, one of the things I dislike doing the most is something that's so embarrassing to admit. And it's sending an invoice to a client at the end of the month for the work that I've already done. I just don't like logging in, don't like cataloging the hours. I don't like typing up like sort of a, a, a list and sending it over. The work I would rather do the work than do that for some reason. I don't know why, but then why on earth am I complaining? Like this is literally when I get paid for everything I did over the last 30 days. It's so funny how our minds work because I'm in the same exact boat. Invoicing my clients is one of the worst parts of my business. And I was like, why am I, this is the, this is the mechanism and the tool that gets me paid for the work that I'm going to be doing. Maybe there's a, maybe we can brainstorm here. How do we make that more enjoyable? How can we make, is it, what part of it do you not like? Is it the, is it actually logging in and doing that? Or is it like, what is it? What part of it do you not like? It is, this is good. I think we can brainstorm on this because we can probably come up with some of the hiccups that we both don't like, and then try to figure out steps to mitigate and work around that. I don't like logging in. I don't like, I don't like creating the, you know, doing it in Word, having my template all set up and then uh, converting it to PDF. Because honestly, wow, this is actually very helpful. My computer's really slow with doing that. And if I could actually just take my computer in and see if there's something that is slowing it down, that would actually make the process that much. You just like connected dots for me right there, just on that simple thing. It's mundane. It's the steps of doing it. And I'd say that those are my, my two biggest hiccups with it. What about you? I like what I do. So the invoicing part sometimes is like, I would do what I do for free, right? And so invoicing for me, it's like assigning now time and, and cost to what I've done. And then it sometimes also makes me evaluate, was that worth it? Like, was what I went through over the last 30 days for this this job worth this now finite number of money? And, and so I go through that sometimes and I just, I just try to avoid it, I guess, occasionally. Well, I mean, that, well, this is really interesting. Uh, is this an opportunity to charge more? Do you, when you do that, do you feel that just throwing regular number? I know this isn't accurate, but for the sake of this, a hundred bucks, I'm invoicing somebody a hundred bucks and you're like, no, no, that's not fair. That's an opportunity for you to look at it and say, I'm increasing my prices and to, yeah. and to stand in that power. And to know the service that I'm offering is worth X amount of dollars. And I think you yeah, deliver that news yeah. in, in, a, in a way where you really stand in your power. And people will, maybe you lose some, but a lot, I think the majority of people are like, yeah, you know what? He is worth that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have a friend that is in a, a, a similar business. He does coaching and, um, and training and that sort of thing, executive coaching and keynotes. And he does something that I admire so much and I just have not had the courage to do yet. And it could potentially help me. And he actually tithes. So let's say he has make a $1,000 uh, invoice. He'll, he'll tithe 10%. He's, he's a Christian. He believes in giving 10% of what he makes to, to God. And then he tithes, I guess, I mean, he gives another 10% on top of that 
from that money. So it's a thousand dollars. He gives a hundred and then he gives another hundred set aside and contacts the client at the end of the year. And he says, Hey, you know, I really appreciate working with you this year. Um, this year, uh, we worked together 12 months. It was $12,000. I am donating $1,200 of your, the fees I charged you to a charity. I want you to choose the charity. Here's the four in your area that I really believe in. Which one do you believe in too? And then they reply, they pick it. And then he gets the executive director of that charity to come into that business and do like a pro bono speech talking about the nonprofit. I would love to invoice if I did that, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah, that puts such a different twist on it. I love that idea. That's absolutely brilliant. That is, that's a mitigation strategy to making invoicing fun is to be able to, I mean, and that's, that's that being of service and giving, which just feels good. But not only that, you are incorporating somebody else into this so that they can feel good about the work that, you know, we've done together. And then on top of that, bringing somebody in to do that pro bono speech. So you've got just the, the value add to everybody else in the organization. He does this with every one of his clients and they, if they don't want to participate, he does, he donates the money anyway. So he's, he's doing that anyway. But think about the difference. If you, if you have two people that offer a similar service and one of them does this with the money you pay them, I'm going to hire that person every time if I heard about that. I mean, it, it's actually probably a marketing tool. And I know he's not intending it to be, but... It, it's absolutely a marketing tool. And I think also marketing tools that are not intended to be marketing tools, when they're, more, when they're genuine and when they're authentic, they, they just work and they make us feel much better about investing our time and our, our money into whatever it may be that is going to be contributing to that charity. Yeah, so you you have a lot of sales experience and I was in sales for a long time. I, I was at Best Buy for almost a decade and, and sold televisions and computers and washers and dryers and all that. And I loved selling. It was my favorite part of my job. But there were some people that sold in ways I didn't necessarily like. You know, it felt like they were trying too hard versus like just building a relationship and then kind of like, giving an option to the customer based on their relationship. And then the customer just wants it because it's the right thing for them. They were more so like, it almost felt like they would brag. They'd be like, oh, I just sold a $1,200 computer to this grandma and she just, she just plays solitaire. I'd be like, why didn't you just sell her a $300 computer? And like, that would have been all she needed, you know? What do you see like in your business now with sort of like the integrity of coaching people and, and what, and like that business? Coaching is extremely interesting because more and more people are entering the coaching space, particularly with COVID, with people losing you know, the, their regular jobs. Coaching has a very low bar of entry because quite literally one day you can just call yourself a coach and bam, you're a coach. So now you're in it. And, and I did that. I put it on my website and within a month, I was leading this transformation challenge. So it does work. Yeah. It absolutely it absolutely does work. And quite frankly, I did that as well. When I decided that I was going to be a coach, I worked with a coach and she said, okay, you want to be a coach? I said, I do. And she goes, call yourself a coach. I said, I'm a coach. She goes, yeah, it's that easy. She said, it can be that easy. Now you have to do the work to you know get the business off the ground, but just so you can embody that it is that easy because it's that easy. It can actually lead to some very 
shady business practices, um, over-promising of coaching deliverables, um, hard sales tactics, using a little bit of fear to, you know, and I know fear is a part of sales, but I don't particularly like that at all. I don't think that's a way that I want to approach something. I don't want to take somebody's, you know, area where they feel deficient and use it against them as a weapon. I will give an example. I actually was looking into, um, for part of my speaking career, I looked, I was looking into hiring a speech coach, if you will, that would help me land gigs and all that stuff. And we had a very personal conversation. He was very good at what he did, then proceeded to use all the personal info that I gave him like a sledgehammer and a weapon to make me feel like garbage if I didn't hire him. And I felt really not good about the call, but I could see how that would work with other people. And so I ended up hiring somebody who made me feel good about myself. And I, and I really loved that approach. So in, in my coaching business, it is about what is the client coming to me for? Am I actually going to be a good match for that? And because if not, I will recommend them to somebody else or I will tell them we're not a really good match. It's very important because of the personal relationship that is involved in coaching. It has to be the right match. Can I add value to them? How can I add value to them? That's what I'm more focused on. And you would like the client to be able to see that the investment is in me is going to give them the value that they're looking for. And it's more, in a sense, the approach that you took at Best Buy. I'm not going to sell somebody a package that they don't need. That doesn't feel good to me. I made, and I bet you we'll probably get into a little bit of this, but I made way too many decisions out of fear that had massive consequences and were out of alignment with who I want to be and how I want to show up. So now when I sell, I want to make sure that it's in alignment with who I am, who I want to be, and how I want to be seen. And it just feels much, much better. I will give an example. I actually had an opportunity. Somebody wanted to hire me and they had things going on in their life. And I won't go into any of the specifics because I keep everything um, very close to the vest. They had things going on in life that I did not feel that coaching was the best use of their time and their energy and their financial investment. And I said, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to work with you until these other things are taken care of. And they were shocked. I'm ready to give you money. And I said, no. And he goes, well, yo, you're, you're right. And I actually, I don't know how I would tell my wife. And I said, you end up working with me. I need it in writing that she knows this is what you're doing because I will not work with you because of some of the other situations that were going on. Talk about a sales tactic. If you wrote that down and you shared it with salespeople, it would close more deals for people who weren't doing it genuinely, right? I think that's how these tactics are a lot of times created. It's a genuine, authentic salesperson does something and someone else sees it and goes, wow, that's like a shortcut. I can skip the relationship and just go straight to this part where I get a deal on a dotted line. Like, I'm going to do that. You know, like it's almost like, yeah, we're just not a good fit. Sorry. I, I just don't, I don't think I can help you. It's like, wait, wait, why? I want you to be my coach. What is it you, I'm not doing? It, it could very easily be turned into that. Absolutely. That becomes that scarcity that, you know, all of a sudden unique and scarcity to, you know, somebody is, willing to get on a call with me because I offer a, a free 45 minute call just to see if we are that match. They've already even scheduling that call is a big step for a lot of people. They're ready to invest in a coach. And now I'm pulling it back. 
you, I mean, think about any time we put something in front of somebody and then pull it back, human nature, we want it more. So yeah, you're right. That could very easily be turned into a little bit of what I would feel almost a shady sales tactic. So you mentioned uh, you have sort of values and you would only do sales tactics that line up with those values, but how, how can the listener kind of create those values for themselves? So I'll tell you, and I hope this works anecdotally for the, for the listener, how I came across my set of values. When I was in prison, I realized that I made terrible choices. And I kept sa- saying to myself through my journaling practice, just through inner dialogue, there's got to be an easier way to make choices. And I wasn't looking for a shortcut. I don't mean easy in a shortcut, but there just has to be an easier way to make challenging decisions and choices. And do you mean choices that don't won't end up, you'll be able to determine that there's the consequences aren't so bad for that choice before you make a choice? What, what I was thinking about in prison were a little bit more of the larger choices, a little bit more of just the bigger um, career um, relationship. Just some of the heavier choices were what I was thinking about when I first started going through this process. And as I was journaling on it, as I was thinking, I kept on using two words that resonated for me. They were filter and lens. I want a filter that I can run choices through or a lens that I can view choices through. That This is how I was viewing it when I was in prison. And I said, it's got to be so so something comes to me and I run it through the filter, almost like a coffee filter. And then the other, when it comes out the other side, it's you know very clear what the answer is. And I didn't realize it because... I had not heard about values at that time, but what I was doing when I got out of prison and had access to a little bit more material, including the internet, I realized that that the filter and the lens were actually my core values. And so what I did in terms of making those difficult choices, what was most important to me? And is that going to be an alignment with those things? And right now I can all share with you my, my values, integrity, courage, freedom, gratitude, creativity. And those have been, those are not static. They are dynamic. They have evolved as I evolve. And I think that's something really important with values is that they are constantly changing because we're never the same person. So they've got to go along with us. Um, At one point I had 10 values and I think any more than 10, it starts getting diluted and it's very difficult to manage them. But now with the five is really very easy to manage them. And when something comes through, integrity is a really big one, especially with choices. Is this going to be in alignment with my integrity? And there's time. Not, there's not always time. But you, do you sit down and journal then and go through, like go, pull them through your values? Or how? what's the process for determining if something's a match for your now defined values? If I do, if I do have the time. And actually, so I'll share with you what I do with the values to actually shorten the amount of time that I need to make difficult choices. I will almost every day as part of my journaling practice, I will write down my five values. I rewrite them. And then I just feel, this may sound silly, but I kind of feel like, what do I want to do with them today? And there are different games that I play with them. One of them is one word association. So what is the first word that comes to mind when I think of integrity? And I just write it and I just will go down my list. What is the first, what is the first word? Fullness. Okay. And what about, and I, for, yeah, for gratitude? Abundance. And creativity? Joy. And what are the other two? Uh, freedom. That's peace. And then 
Courage. Okay, so you you you've got the word that comes to mind, and so then what? So then, sometimes it's as simple as that. Sometimes it's as simple as just that one word association, and it helps reinforce my values because I know what that means to me. Other times I do, and there's no rhyme or reason to this. I wish I had a little more of a definitive structure. Sometimes I do three words, and another thing that I like to do. This one is really good for really instilling them as a state of being and not just understanding them on an intellectual level.、Uh, I will write the following sentence: When I live with integrity, I can then, and then I fill in whatever, whatever I feel at that moment. There's no canned answer. It's it's very in the moment and however I'm feeling. When I live with freedom. When I embody, I'll change the wording. When I embody integrity, it allows me to X and fill in the blank. But playing with these different word games just allows me to shorten the amount of time when I have a difficult choice because there's more intrinsic into my my just my state of being that I can just take that thing. It runs right through, and if it doesn't jive with one of them, no, it's a no. If it jives with all of them, it's yes. It's like you're training. Your subconscious, or your—it's like you're training your gut intuition by repeating this over and over and over again. You are learning pretty quickly something doesn't feel right, and you don't have to even know why. Possibly, that's exactly that's exactly what it is. It is getting it on that subconscious level so that we I, that I can I can feel my gut and I can feel my intuition when I was making those choices that landed me in prison. My intuition was pretty damn loud about "Don't do this. This is not the way," and I ignored it and paid a very significant consequence for that. So it's very important for me to listen to that voice now and live in alignment with it, and to be able to cultivate and curate that voice and let and let it be heard. And the interesting thing with that, with with the the prison,、uh, is that that voice. It wasn't like it was one time. It not it didn't come up one time. It was over and over and over and over again. So it showed that there you have multiple opportunities to get it right. So if you make a poor values based decision, but for your values, you do you think there's very many choices where just you're only going to get one chance, or is it like oftentimes you're kind of burying yourself deeper and deeper? I think you bury yourself deeper and deeper. Absolutely. I think that that first initial choice, if it is made. Not in alignment with values, but you are invested in that choice, and you're not willing to act with courage and correct that choice. We we just feel that、um, you know what is almost like a sunken cost fallacy, where I've already put this into something, and now even though I know it's wrong, I have to fight to keep it alive. You know, I know it's a little bit different than the sunk cost fallacy, but it has that same analogy to it. And I think that's having that awareness to to stop and that courage to say to another person or even ourselves that was not the correct choice. I was wrong. I lived out of my values, and I'm now looking to correct it. And to say that we're wrong, and to say that we made the incorrect choice, it's very difficult. Imagine But, the we were talking about kind of reprogramming your intuition and subconscious. Imagine the programming that would happen. Internally, if you did that, where you're like, you know what, that was not based on my values. I can't do that anymore. And maybe you turn down a job opportunity, or maybe you, 
don't go on a date with someone or, or whatever it was that you end up not, or you don't meet up with some people you were thinking of meeting up with. What Those are all just bad examples, but that takes so much courage to not keep digging. This is great. I'm so happy that you said that. And I actually will, I'll argue that those were great examples. And this ties perfectly back to gratitude and why gratitude is so important. Gratitude to me cultivates courage because when we're grateful, we start feeling abundant. When we're abundant, we're not in a scarcity mindset. If we feel abundant, we're more willing to take those risks. We're more willing to be courageous. It's very difficult to act with courage when we're living in a scarcity mindset. So if you can actually start practicing that gratitude, creating that abundance mindset, cultivating that courage so that if you do make a poor choice, you're not in the scarcity mindset, you have the courage to be able to then rectify it. Have you found just through coaching and and just through personal reflection, there's a, there's something that derails people more often than not in these values decisions, like something that's so tantalizing and it, it kind of leads people down the wrong path? Boy, it's funny. There's only one word that came to mind with that. And it's such a, we, we'll, we'll, ha- we'll have to unpack this some, but the first thing when you said that to me, was ego. Hmm. For me, it was like money. Like I was thinking money for some reason. That's what a lot of times it, that's what leads me down bad paths is, is wanting more of it. So maybe it is ego, scarcity mindset or whatever it is, but ego. So, okay, that's, let's talk about that. That is doing something that people think they should be doing to live up to others' expectations. Ego, oftentimes it can be, it's a, it's a short-term solution as opposed to a long-term doing the, the work to create something. Let's use my book, for example, it took six and a half years. That's a long time to commit to something that I have no idea how it's actually going to do. The short-term would have been to try to shortcut it and try to you know put something out that wasn't what the book ended up being. Which it ended up being been... phenomenal, by the way, but keep <laughs> <Yeah>. going. <laughs> And I, you know, I think that would have been ego driven. Would I actually connecting back to wanting to help that one person is I knew I had people pressuring me a couple of years into writing the book. I did one of those um, coaching workshops. This was before I was a coach. I did one of those weekend coaching workshops. That was kind of a rah, rah, gung ho type of thing, which I'm not a huge fan of that environment. And I told them I would be working on the book for two years. And they said, oh, your challenge is to publish it you know, by the end of this weekend. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to do that. It's not ready. And that, you know, though that's fear. And I think that would have been ego-based had I bought into that story and just published it for the sake of publishing it, as opposed to having a genuine why and doing the work to get it to the place that it got to. So I can, in fact, help that one person. Because I wouldn't have been able to help that one person if I shortcutted it and put it out quickly. Sometimes it is true. Like people just need a weekend and they can finish a project they've been putting off because they're just afraid to press enter. But then in other cases, it's not ready or they're not ready or whatnot. How do you figure out which which camp you're in? That's a great, great question. And that is going to be having that self-awareness to say, am I making a fear-based decision or am I making... And this is straight from James Altucher. Am I making a fear-based decision or a growth-based decision? Hey, sorry to interrupt the show, but I must share this recent listen review from Diane. Diane writes, quote, I always enjoy James's curiosity about living life well. 
his interest in how others seek to accomplish this, along with the friendly, engaging manner in which he guides conversations, invites the listener to not only learn from, but to enjoy friends as they explore stewarding the gift of life in a way that brings fruitful blessing to others. Thanks, Diane. If this is your review, please send me an email at podcast at and I'll send you a swag bag. And you're going to want one of these things. They're fantastic. They're full of some of my favorite things, including coffee from Purity Coffee, energy bars from Keon, mushrooms from Four Sigmatic, electrolytes from Protect, and much, much more. Trust me, you want one of these. How about you? Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I might just read your review live. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. Now, back to the show. Yeah, what is the fear? Oftentimes with my clients, and this ties back to the ego, is the fear of being seen. People who want to create something new in their life, whether it be a business, an invention, an app, um, a book, a screenplay. When you create something new and put it out into the world, you're going to be seen. And I believe that that is at our core of being human beings. That's one of our greatest desires is to be seen and heard. And on the flip side of that, that is our greatest fear. And I think that is the most challenging thing for people is if I create this widget, um, I have a client who's got um, a cool, cool thing that they have developed and they're really having a difficult time putting it out there because what are friends going to say? What are family going to say? What if it quote unquote fails? And that's all that part of being seen. And that's, that's right. Rooted back to the ego. I've found through this mentorship with James Altucher, uh, a good way to look at that is, is okay. What if, what if, what if, but the alternative is like, what if they love it? And what if everyone loves it? And, and maybe sometimes the fear is actually, what if it is successful? What if your book is successful and you're on Oprah next week and the Tim Ferriss podcast and you're selling hundreds of thousands of copies? Are you ready to, to do that? Like, and that can scare people too. Like, it can be so big they're afraid of what it could do. That is um, when I worked with my coach in the beginning. That was one of my fears was actually fear of success, was fear of success. And I'll tell you what actually ended up coming down for me was that fear of success. My root cause of that was my fear of losing it all again. I was successful before prison and I was, my identity was so interwoven with my things and my ability to purchase those things. I'm no longer that person, but that fear of building up a large amount of success and losing it and experiencing all of that, uh, it's funny because it wouldn't be the same experience because I'm not the same person, but that fear is still very much there. It's a, that's a protection instinct. That's what keeps us from getting killed in the jungle. It's like, I'm not going to that part of the woods, even if there is, might be a magic pot of gold there. Because one time I went there and I got mauled. You're telling me that there's no bears there anymore, but I'm not going, I'm not going back, you know? That's exactly right. And I had, I had a very traumatic experience of that loss. That's a hard thing to unwind. And it really comes down to connecting with, I'm no longer that person to also know, okay, what is the worst case scenario if you lose everything again? 
Have you, were you able to build back up after prison? I find that to be a super helpful exercise. Like, what is the worst case scenario? Like, I've thought about that before. Like, all right, well, I, I lose my house. I'm living on a bench. I'm like, well, I know if that happened, I'd, I know how I'd get food. I would go to the restaurants. I would, you know, I have like this idea. Like, all right, that wouldn't be so bad. But have you read any of um, Stephen Pressfield's book, like The War of Art? Stephen Pressfield's books, uh, The War of Art and Turning Pro, were absolutely crucial to the creation of my book and my business and everything I've done. I reread them. I love them. I think, I mean, I, what he did for entrepreneurs and creatives, because it's not just for creatives, what he's done for anybody who wants to create something. I mean, just a simple, beautiful, those two books are a must for anybody who wants to create something. Yeah. And I felt like they were written to me like, Hey, James, here's everything you're thinking. I'm like, how does he know exactly what I'm thinking about? Like, it's so good. It's unbelievable. He tapped, he tapped into that thing when we, when we first start realizing that we want to create something new and that inner dialogue that I believe all of us experience, he just, he, he exposed it. He just tapped into his own and exposed it. And whether you are writing a book or launching a business, it's still that same fear. It's still that same resistance. And you talk about creativity as being one of your five values. And so part of creativity is, I mean, the whole thing of creativity is doing something new. So you have to face that resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about all the time because it's literally part of your fabric. It's your DNA and your values. It, it is what makes it actually kind of easy for me. You know, I, I always have loved creativity ever since I was a little kid. And it's so easy to get away from it because, you know, I wasn't really doing much with it other than just having joy. But then I realized what's wrong with just joy unto itself. That shows that I'm worthy. Like I am most joyful when I'm in a moment of flow and I'm just creating a piece that I may be writing may never even see the light of day or this business that I come up with. It may be something that I loved writing on paper, but it doesn't have a big enough of pull for me to actually start it. But the act of doing that, those are my favorite, favorite moments in life. So that having that as my core value is fairly easy to maintain because of how much joy it actually brings me. And that joy reinforces to me something that I struggled with, with pre-prison and quite frankly, even to this day, a little bit of um, an issue with self-worth and reinforcing the fact that I can do something that brings me so much joy reinforces that sense of self-worth. And then you kind of talked about a briefly, and I was enamored with this, this spotlighting technique of, um, I, I tell me if I'm wrong on this interpretation. To me, it was sort of that inner voice. That was almost a, it's almost like right documenting what the resistance is saying to you on paper. And so you can get the resistance to be quiet and then you can go back to being creative and doing what you were trying to do. That's exactly, I love that analogy of it. I mean, that was a perfect um, description and it just really, it came to me so intuitively as I was writing and creating something and enjoying myself of just that inner voice of this is stupid. Why are you doing this? This is a waste of time. You know, everything that we hear, people are going to laugh at it, all of these things. And I just said, fine, you want to be heard. I'm going to allow you to be heard. And I caught it in real time. Uh, if there were curse words in it, if there were ums, if there were buts, if there were so's, if there were those filler words, you know, just catching it in real time. And like I write about in the book, 
the one word, the, the higher inner voice, not that lower inner voice, the higher inner voice, as I was putting a spotlight on it, just kept on saying, why? What's the evidence? What's the evidence behind this? Prove it. You know, show me something behind it. And it couldn't. And it was such a powerful exercise for me to capture that inner resistance and see that it had no legs. It had no substance. Yeah. I've found for writing, for me, the earlier I get up and I start working on it before I've kind of gone through much of the day, that voice is a lot quieter. If I'm late in the day trying to put out something that I have to get out, that voice is like, what? who are you? You're a poser. Like, you... You can't write right now. You only write in the morning with no food in your belly, with a fresh cup of coffee. Like, who do you think you are? Why you, you shouldn't even be doing this. No one's even going to care if you don't send it out. Like all of these things. It's like, it's like, oh, I know it's the resistance. I know that this thing exists now. I give into it still though. I mean, I still fail sometimes, you know, very often. But I, th- I think that's what's so important. Why these conversations are so important to have. It is, it's not about always beating the resistance. Life isn't that way. We don't always come out on top. And it's admitting that I fall prey to it. You fall prey to it. It's a very real thing. And that's why Stephen Pressfield's books feel like they were written exactly to us, is the fact that we do still succumb to it. Um, Can I share a quick story? Because you and I are almost like peas in the pod right now, where I had, I was about three years into writing the book and I had an afternoon off. And I was sitting around not doing much. And I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to write, I'm going to write the book. And I'm a morning guy as well. So it's about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I start rereading the uh, couple of paragraphs that I wrote so I could warm myself up to, to continue the writing process. And I'm reading it and I just go, I wasted three years of my life on this crap. Are you kidding me? This is garbage. I mean, I was vicious with myself. I clobbered myself. And I thank God I had the awareness to go, I'm not great in the afternoon with writing. Let's go for a walk. I'm laughing because I identified that exact same issue with going back because I've learned another technique is not to create and edit or judge at the same time, like get all the creation part done and then even if it's right after, then edit. But don't try to edit while you're creating because that's like allowing that voice to come in so just free flow get it out with a transcription or type it but don't edit but then there's times where i just run out of time and i'm editing later in the day for example and it's like what was i thinking this is the worst writing i've ever done and it's like delete 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 and it's like it it's so judgmental and the later we get in the day the more times we've had to like follow our heart and our values and our instincts. So we just sort of get weaker at, at, at overcoming that voice. It starts to actually, finally, we start believing it. We start believing it. And so what I've, what I've done is I structure my day based on knowing when I'm strong, you know, knowing when I am, I'm more courageous in the morning. And what do I mean by courageous? Like even reaching out to somebody to be a guest on their podcast, I'll do that in the morning where hitting send is a no brainer. But if I was to, to hit that, it, it's so, how funny is this? The action of hitting send is the exact same, regardless of the time of day that we do it. But in the morning, I hit it without hesitation. If I was to be about three, 3.30 in the afternoon, 
don't do it. They don't want to speak to you. What are you possibly going to say? All of those voices come through. So I will structure my day for creativity in the morning. Um, people that I want to reach out to, even if it's just kind of like, I, I've reached out to Stephen Pressfield to let him know how much his work has impacted me. And, you know, to send that email in the, in the afternoon, you know, why are you doing this? This is, you know, it's going to look phony. It's going to look fake or something like that. And I was, no, I do all those things in the morning. In the afternoon is when I do, I'll do more of my invoicing. Yeah. You know, the inner voice doesn't have much to say about invoicing, except I, I don't like doing this. Yeah. And the inner voice loves invoicing because that's how we uh, feed ourselves, I guess. Right. But there's right. There's a book by Julia Cameron called The Artist's Way. And that was another one. Uh, she calls this process. You call it spotlighting. It's very similar to her morning pages concept, which is basically where you sit down on paper or on a text file on your computer and you write everything that you're thinking, all the dots, the ums, the swear words, the you're not good enough, you should just quit, nobody likes your stuff anyway, you you keep going. And then you close it and you never look at it ever again. And then with a clean mind, you can actually start your writing for the day. And I don't do that. I think it sounds really smart. I probably should. Uh, but it it really connected with me with your technique and, and with her hers as well. It's just getting that voice out of your head. And it's not just for writers. This is not just for writers. This is for getting the courage to ask someone on a date. This is for getting the courage to ask for a promotion or negotiating a better salary in an interview. Any of those things, the inner the, this resistance will will come and say you're not good enough and you're not worth it and that you shouldn't be asking. It really will. And I love um, I love The Artist's Way. I think that's a beautiful book. And one of the practices that I started in prison, I wasn't even really aware of uh, Julia Cameron at the time, but is just stream of conscious journaling. That was one of the practices I started in prison along with gratitude. And I still do that to every day. And the spotlighting for me is a little bit different than my journaling practice. Those are kind of two unique things where the journaling is just that it is getting everything out on the on the page um the spotlighting i'll use if i am creating something and i'm writing something and that voice of resistance comes up i'll stop whatever i'm doing and i will literally spotlight it and put a put a shine that light on it and say okay you don't like this paragraph you don't like this business idea you don't like the email that i'm writing tell me tell me all about it i want to see it and it just doesn't hold up. So it's a it's not a warm up. It's actually a technique in the moment to get that voice, give it give it some give it a place, and then you can look at it with that other side of your mind and go, "This is just silly. Like I don't actually believe this." I have you ever accidentally sent an email with your uh, inner voice inside of it? <laughs> no. So what I actually so what I do I use Grammarly for everything that I write. So everything goes into Grammarly before, and I cut and paste into the uh, into the email. So I make sure that it it goes everything. I have that opportunity to do like a double check. We, we were talking about sales techniques. It might actually be another one of those techniques like, wow, this person's so forward. Look how they talk about themselves. If they're willing to admit they talk about themselves like this, they probably have pretty good integrity and authenticity. I want to work with them. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll do maybe I'll do a, a test. I'll I'll try that a couple of times and see how it works yeah, out. Yeah, like you yeah. should next time you want to email like Stephen Pressfield, uh just 
have all the, like, I can't be emailing him. He's just going to laugh at me. Like, who am I? He wrote some of the best books that have changed so many people's lives. I'm a, I'm a poser. I'm a wannabe. And just include all that. He'd be like, he's like, wow. He's like, I'm going to include this as a chapter in my next book because this is, this is what it looks like. You know, we all deal <laughs> this with this. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the fuel for my next book. This is perfect. Yeah. That's so I think another technique that you talk a lot about that connects with this. So we've got the journaling, we've got gratitude, which kind of go hand in hand. We've got the spotlighting, which is a technique to use in the moment to bring you back to the non-judgment side. And then another one, it's sort of uh, just training to calm those the mind in general is the meditation part. So how does that connect into all of this? The meditation was if there were there were three practices I started in prison that I still do to this day: meditation, journaling, and gratitude. And I loved when I was on James Altucher's podcast. He used the greatest description of those three practices as clearing the decks, and that just struck such a chord with me. And that's each one of them unto themselves clears the decks. It's very much like Julia Cameron was talking about with the morning pages. Um, but meditation allows me to just observe my thoughts. It just allows me to, and it's almost like a spotlighting exercise, if you will, but it's not to quiet the mind, but just to observe the mind and those thoughts and to see where my, to see where my brain likes to keep going because there's a lesson to be learned there. If I keep getting pulled in a certain direction, that is something for me after the meditation to journal on and to, to look at the meditation is what I love about it is I will, I sit for about 25 minutes every morning, 20 minutes of that is my mantra based meditation. And I've, when my timer goes off, I have a backup timer that will go for another five minutes. And that is some affirmations. I will just repeat affirmations over and over again. And to me, that's very much a meditation because I will, I just focus on the affirmations and focus on to the point where I actually will speak from my heart and I will speak from my stomach. I want the words to come from inside what we were talking about earlier about kind of training the subconscious. I want to train my body to I want to train my body to embody these affirmations. And so it's 25 minutes. But what I love about that is it's actually about the other 23 plus hours of the day. That's what meditation really, that's where it, I guess, flexes its muscles. When something happens, I can look at it. Something, let's say something not great happens. Uh, I dropped a glass the other day. I, I dropped um, I dropped a glass that was one of the things I got from the divorce that was actually a wickedly expensive, stupid coffee mug, um, you know, just this outrageously expensive, and it broke. And there would have been before prison, I would have been like, that cost so much money, I would have been upset. And I looked at it in its pieces, didn't even react immediately to go pick it up. I just looked at it. And the first thing that came to mind was that cup was already broken. And this, the idea of impermanence. And I took my time cleaning it up. And that to me is function of meditation to give me that space to understand that this was impermanent anyway. It's not that big of a deal. Things happen. In those situations where you're looking at the broken coffee cup and you don't feel anything and you know that you would normally get angry, maybe, 
does it ever surprise you? You're like, wow, why am I not angry right now or, or disappointed? Absolutely. And to me, it's the, it's that lower voice, that lower self voice will say, you know, you should be getting, you should be getting more upset. That thing costs a lot of money. You don't, you only have a few left and very much that scarcity mindset. You know, I can listen to it and learn from that. And really realize like it doesn't matter. And you're you're that voice is grasping at these straws that don't matter. I can feel guilty, but I realize that voice of guilt is also the lower self. Because I really believe and our, our our higher self is always going to speak to us in a voice of love and compassion. Our higher selves, who we really are, I don't believe is ever going to speak to us in a negative voice. It's not going to guilt us. It's not going to shame us. Yeah. So I was curious with your story and, and your book and your practices about your your faith. Uh, I'm a Christian and I go th- I I also read C.S. Lewis's book and it reminds me of Stephen Pressfield in the way there's a book by C.S. Lewis. It's um, called The Screwtape Letters. And the pre- the premise of the book, it's these this demon and he's a tempter. And it's him talking about how he tempts the human that he's tasked with. Every every person has a demon that's basically trying to take you off course and make you do things you don't want to do and take you away from things that make you happy. And basically all these different things is fascinating because it's like the resistance, but it's it's based on the, you know, Satan. And the crazy thing about that book is when things are crap in your life. They're like, well, we don't have to even do anything. We don't have to do any tempting here. Like, we just kind of disappear. When things are good, when things are going really well, and you're having success, and you're meeting people, and you're happy, they have to continuously prod you, and poke you, and push you, and change your directions, and try to bring you back down. But when things are bad, they just leave you alone. For me, it's always like, man, that means I might be on the right path if I'm starting to feel this resistance and I'm putting myself out there and I'm trying new things because I am being tempted and things think and I just have to keep doing what I'm doing. Do you follow like a, a faith of any kind? I don't. I don't. I am very agnostic and I, I if anything, I would lean more towards Buddhism. I find it fascinating. And this is not a faith, but I'm um, a huge fan of the Stoics in terms of just, you know, a philosophy is where I where my leanings go is, yeah. is in between those two. There was just a fascinating episode on James's show um, this week about different uh, like stoicism, absurdism, uh, a few other theories. And they talked about Buddhism. They talked about all this stuff. You should definitely check that one out. It was fascinating. The Stephen Pressfield really does a good job of outlining this very similar things as C.S. Lewis. You won't hear the resistance when you're on the wrong path. You hear the resistance when you're doing things that are going to make you better and you're trying new things. What's so powerful about that is trying to reframe. And we're going to go right back to gratitude is actually be grateful for that resistance and be grateful for that fear, because it does mean that we're going in the right direction. But when you're feeling that in that moment, though, you're like, I'm going in the wrong direction because I feel really bad. It feels really bad and it takes a lot of it takes a lot of work. And I think one of the core components of that work is self-trust, is to be able to trust ourselves that regardless of because when we when we embody self-trust, 
we know that we're going to be okay, no matter the outcome, whether it is a positive outcome or a negative outcome, we're going to be okay. And I think knowing that we're going to be okay gives us that courage. And so when we have that level of self-trust, we can reframe that resistance and that fear and say, this doesn't feel good, but what happened last time I did this? When I was done doing X, I felt amazing. There is magic on the other side of this thing and I know it and I really, I would like to see it. And what will I feel if I don't go for it? You know, Tim Ferriss asks a beautiful question. What is the cost of inaction? Is it's so easy to get caught up in the fear and what if I do this? What if I do that? But what if I don't? And for me, regret played a huge part of the shame that I felt after prison. And I really just, you know, not to sound cliche, but I don't want to come to the end of my life and just see, I know there will be regrets because that's just human nature, but I just don't want to, I want to reduce the size of the pile of regrets that I have at the end of my life. So how, how do you build more self-trust besides having your values clear and, 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 and meditating and um, like what other practices can you do to build more self-trust? Like, well, how important is it to, the the people that are around you, like your friends or the or your family that are around you, in building self trust. So there's two things there, and I'll I'll make sure I answer both of them. Number one, the people that we surround ourselves with are critically important. Um, we can't change our family, but we can change our response to them. And I love my family to death, but there are times that they, you know, will question my business, and because they don't quite understand it, it's not the traditional path you know, I've come from a family of traditional jobs where you work somewhere for a very long time period and you retire. Mine is definitely not that. So you can't change that, but I can change how I respond. But my friends and my support system, that is so critically important. And to also have people who are going to say, yeah, you are on the right path. And also people are going to say, no, you're not on the right path. Equally important. So the people that we surround ourselves with is critical to, to not only our success, but just our inner well-being, which I think is really the root of all success. And then to answer how we build self-trust, there are, there are a couple of different ways to do this, but, the, but maybe the easiest, and this is, it's easy in, in principle, but execution could be a little difficult because we can find that resistance, but it is making and keeping commitments mostly to ourselves in the beginning and then to others. So it can be something as simple as I am going to go to the gym today. Sounds very silly, but if you're not a person who regularly goes to the gym, make it a commitment, make it real, then do it, execute upon it and pat yourself on the back when you're done with it. You all of a sudden become somebody who says, who does what they say that they're going to do. And the more you do that, the more you learn to trust your own word and you develop that self-trust and it starts growing in time and then start committing to somebody else. I will get you that um, project, that report, that whatever, by close of business on Friday and then deliver it and deliver on time and always pat yourself on the back when you're done, even if it's something small because our brain loves that. So we want to reinforce, particularly if the commitment that we're making is something that's a little bit frightening to us and we do go through it, 
want to give ourselves that pat on the back. That way, when we come up to the next difficult thing, our brain goes, you know, last time we did that, I got a nice little pat on the back and I got a nice little shot of dopamine. So I want to do that again. It's really easy to just not make commitments because then you can't let anyone down, but then you're not giving yourself a chance to prove you're someone who can actually make commitments. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very easy to get out of it. So that's, I like starting small. I think starting very small incremental baby steps because it's very easy for that resistance and that overwhelm to come in if we start trying to do too many things at once. So we baby step this thing, you know, all the way to to fruition of something much larger. Yeah, there's um, BJ Fogg has a book called Tiny Habits. And then there's a similar book by James Clear called Atomic Habits. And it's a similar concept. It's like, Floss one tooth, do one squat, drive to the gym and don't even get out of the car, but just drive home. And eventually you're like, well, I drove to the gym. I have my gym shorts on. I might as well go in. And once you're in, it's easy. It's just becoming the person who goes to who it's like because you have to become a different person. You have to tell yourself a different story. You don't you're not always going to have the motivation. Um, but if it's very, very, very small step that you have to take, you don't need very much motivation to do it for that. It's about finding what the smallest possible viable first step could be. And this is something I have to deal with all the time with trying to start businesses and, 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 and this brand, it's like, what, well, what's like the smallest thing I could possibly do today? Um, and there's that, that whole phrase, like, what's the one thing I could do today that would make everything else, uh, unnecessary or uh, unneeded anymore. Um, I think that's from Gary Keller, even with that, like a to-do list, I'm like, ah, I don't even want to write the to-do list because then I actually have to do those things. I know how my brain works. I'm like, if I have the to-do list, the stuff on there is going to get done. So I won't even build the to-do list today. (laughs) What a great way of avoiding having to do it. Just don't even do the to-do list. list. Skip it all together. But we did talk about friends. If if you have a circle of friends and you want to not level up your friends, because I don't think you should get rid of friends necessarily. Um, Maybe some of you you disinvest as much time and have them have less authority over the decisions that you're making potentially. But how do you go and find friends who understand what you're doing? Like, I get what you said. Like, my family doesn't really understand what I do for a living. They understood when I was at Best Buy where I was just a a corporate guy. They understood what I did. Now it's like, is he underemployed? Like, is like, what is he doing? Like, how is he making his money? Like, are they living in a closet? Like my studio here? Uh, like, like, how do you make, how do you find those friends and how do you make those friends? Like what's worked for you? This is giving me a little bit of, I'm I'm trying to think of how to articulate that. And it really is it honestly, how I've made my friends and met new people is by sharing the things online that resonate with me, that are important to me, not trying to follow the topic of the day, if you will, on Instagram or LinkedIn or the hot buzzword that may be floating around, you know, the use of the word wellness. And, um, and, you know, I know gratitude is out there a tremendous amount, but writing from just a very authentic and very real place, not trying to do what I think other 
not emulating people who are successful, but creating success in my own way and showing up the way that I want to show up, that it's alignment with my values. And I find that in a sense, if you think about it, how do we kind of connect? And I think that's how we do it. It's just through some very organic, very real interactions online. I, you know, I listened to you on James Altucher's show and I sent you a message saying, I really like what you're doing. And that was very real. It was very genuine. And it's just take, it comes back to what we were talking about a little bit before, but taking some of those risks, reaching out to a stranger, you know, offering genuine value, even if it's just a compliment. And I think that's how, how I've found my friends and expanded that circle is just showing up how I want to show up and how it feels good for me. Yeah. And the right people will show up in, in, when you do that, I think. And I knew just from reading your book and listening to you on podcasts, like, I like him. You know, I, he's someone I want to talk to. I want to learn more about how he uh, he operates at such a high level mentally. I mean, you've put so much time and thought and energy into these tactics that are so techniques, meditation and gratitude and self-examination and journaling and spotlighting. You've all of that takes a lot of introspection and it makes you have to go to places you may not want to go because you're going to have to address things about yourself you may not want to have to address that's what's so important is and it's i i feel like this is perfect because it connects with everything we've been talking about it's that resistance it's that fear it's that going places that we don't want to go and that's that level of introspection is you know it started for me in prison of why did I make the choices that I made? Why did I sacrifice so much for so little? And really, you know, when I started asking myself those questions, that's um, another thing that I really love is self-inquiry. I love questions. I love asking myself questions, not about having the right answer. It's just about stimulating a new way of thinking. But when I started asking those questions inside prison, they hurt. They, they really genuinely hurt. And I knew that that hurt meant that there was some kind of gold on the other side of it. And was I going to be willing to excavate for that gold and to be able to find it? In a sense, I was fortunate because I had nothing to lose because I had lost everything. So that gave me a little more freedom to be able to, to explore and, and know that I, I had to rebuild and I had to restart from scratch. So I, I have to go to the places I don't want to. So how do you do that process for folks that come to you for coaching and they want, I think you use a design, uh, it's, you use an architect, I think is a, a word you kind of, uh, you architect the life you want sort of from, uh, I don't know that you can tell me the exact phrasing, but you want to design something new for yourself, but you, you have a whole lot of time commitments. You have a job, you have a family, you have kids, you have, you know, all of that. How do you find, I guess it's not about finding the time, but how do you prioritize doing that introspection work amongst all the chaos of a regular life? So I call myself um, a reinvention architect. Okay. It's the title that I gave myself. And that is literally, like you said, it's starting from starting over. And it's not always starting from scratch but it's just that starting over, creating something new, reinventing ourselves. And for people who, the majority of my clients have the nine to five job, they have kids, they have all those things. And what we do, and everybody is different, but there is, or there are rather, a few key core components to it. And that is just getting crystal clear clarity 
on what it is you want in your life. And just getting very clear because so often we can say, you know, what would you like? Oh, I'd like to be happy. What does that mean? That has no substance to it. Do you like ice cream? Yeah, I like ice cream. Here's an ice cream cone. You're going to be happy until you're done with it. Maybe even halfway through, you're not happy when it's dripping on your fingers. <laughs> right, exactly. You're like, oh, this isn't quite what I wanted. I got the wrong flavor. It, you know, so that's not, but getting crystal clear clarity because it is not a fun place to be when you're in that nine to five and caught up in the deluge of all of that and the un- wanting more, but not knowing what it is. We give ourselves a sense of agency when we get crystal clear clarity. So that's going to be number one. And that is done, depending on the person, we do that through a lot of questions and setting time aside because what I want to do for my clients, because they are so busy and there are stresses with that busyness is to let them know, to connect the dots that when you do this inner work, it's actually going to have, it's going to be like throwing a rock into a still pond those ripples are going to reach out to every component of your life. And I promise you, when you start doing this, work is going to be a little bit less stressful because you have something to look forward to at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, or whenever you're doing this introspection, you're going to see your relationships with your family and your friends and your colleagues change because you're changing. It's a little bit of a leap of faith to take that, you know, to to take that to heart, but to see the evidence start flowing through, that is where we really where we really break into creating more time for that, dedicating more time for that. It is the equivalent to, in a sense, going to the gym and working out for a while, but your bicep is still the same exact size. And then all of a sudden, one day you look in the mirror and you go, oh, it's a little bit bigger. Now I want to go back to the gym. What I've been doing is working. And we do that when we start seeing just a little more joy a little bit more patience with the people maybe we didn't have patience with. Uh, You know, just how people respond to us is also a really good mirror of the work that we're doing. And that's, that's how we, that's how we prioritize that. And how did, where does sharing with the people around you play into that? Like telling them what you're trying to accomplish? This I like, and this is a tricky one. And I feel like this goes back to what we were talking about with our family and friends and who we surround ourselves with, uh, knowing who your allies are, knowing who your allies are is so, so important. The people who are going to support you as you're starting something new, I think it's a a symptom of self-sabotage. If I know that Tom, completely made up name, but Tom always shoots down all of my ideas and I have this new idea and I go and share it with Tom, I'm basically shooting myself in the foot because I have a little bit of fear or resistance or lack of self-trust to actually move forward with that. But if I know that Jill supports everything that I, you know, do, but also calls me out when it's not quite right, but does it in a constructive way, it's telling the right people so that you bring people on board. But having said that, I think this is critically important depending on who we are, who you are, and what it is that we're working on. But I think if you have this big audacious goal, I like keeping it to myself until it's at a point where nobody can really tell me that it's not going to work because it's already in place. And there's for, there's a little bit of science behind that too. Oftentimes, if we share a goal with somebody and they go, oh my God, that's a great idea. We'll get that shot of dopamine and now our brain 
is fooled into thinking that we actually did the thing. And it takes some of that fuel away from actually doing the thing. I do both like sharing, but I also like keeping it when it's in its nascent stages, when it's just a seed that has been planted and we haven't even watered it yet. I don't like sharing it at that point. That makes a lot of sense. And I think back to all the entrepreneurial endeavors I've worked on over the years, the people I've told that some of the ideas I just never even continued after telling a person and they're like, ah, that sounds too hard. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It is too hard. I was looking for an excuse not to do it. And then I just move on. And so like knowing which friends are which is so important in this and surrounding yourself with people who believe that you can create something from nothing because not everyone believes that. And, and it's, it's hard to be a creator. You constantly have um, this resistance. And I'm curious. So we've talked so much about these practices that you've spent a lot of time developing. What are you working through right now? Like what challenges are you trying to go through like right now that you're using these techniques for? Wow. Good timing. So a week ago, I really hit a personal roadblock. The, my coaching business is going well. The book is doing well. Like these were big goals for me to accomplish. So I started looking at what else do I want to do? And I, I felt myself getting drawn more, not, not towards professional goals, but more personal goals. And one of the ones I wrote about in the other uh, book is climbing Kilimanjaro. And the other one is I'm, I've had a passion for cars since I was seven years old. Absolutely love cars. And I want to learn how to race cars. And so I started thinking about those two things. And then, you know, the universe is very funny how it works. I have somebody who is putting together a trip to Kilimanjaro next um, February. So that can be a reality. I met my third person in a fairly short time who can set me up with race lessons. So that can be a reality. And I think when things show up in threes, it could be a little bit of my you know, spiritual side. But I think there's something when things show up in threes, it's kind of like a message to move forward. But I, I tell you all this because I started realizing these could become a reality. And that resistance kicked in really hard where I was like, no, those things are the domain of others. They do that. You know, them, they can go to Kilimanjaro. They can race cars. And I couldn't identify who they or them actually are, just that it's not me. And as I was journaling through it, I wrote the sentence, it's not available to me. And that really allowed me to open up some doors into why is it not available to me? And it dawned on me that I didn't feel worthy of the joy that I believe that those activities will give me. And so I realized that I have some of those things to work on. So it is utilizing the gratitude to be grateful for what I have and to understand that everything that I have has been the result of all the work that I did and that I was worthy of doing all that work to get all these things. That is the spotlighting exercise. You know, okay, who is them? Who is they? <laughs> who are those? You know, who, who are these people? And really calling out that not available to me, um, not worthy of, and utilizing those practices to, to navigate through. So this is really a very timely question. And one Quite frankly, I'm still, I've been able to navigate through and I understand it on an intellectual level, but I am still working to embody it on an intrinsic level to understand that 
I am in fact worthy of these things. And I'll tell you something that I'm going to do to that I think is going to help me through that is I'm buying a, I'm going to buy a weighted vest on Amazon and I close each day going with a walk while I'm going to start walking with my weighted vest. And that's going to be training for Kilimanjaro, even though I haven't booked the ticket, even though I haven't done anything. And it's what we talked about at the beginning of this episode is the acting as if. And so I'm going to start acting as if. And I think that is going to be those incremental baby steps that work, allow me to work through that. I, I hope that I hope that answered it. Yeah, but why? I'm curious why you can't be the person that does that. Why? What? Why don't you deserve that? And that's see, that's that's how the spotlighting comes in. I can't answer you. It's just that feeling. There's nothing. There's nothing that really bubbles up. There's no substance to it. It's just that feeling. And that's why the spotlighting and asking those questions is so valuable, you know, but it's, I'll, I'll be very honest. There's actually a voice that's now whispering to me. It's because you went to prison. That's what I was going to ask you is, have you forgiven yourself for your past? What I've learned, obviously everything is a journey, but forgiveness is a journey. And I will absolutely say that I have forgiven myself. And I, I felt it the day that I held my book for the first time. That, for some reason, was just this one of the most emotional experiences of my life where I actually felt great gratitude for every single thing I went through. And I was able to accept what I'd done fully and forgive myself fully. But that forgiveness is a journey. And as these things come up and as these resistances come up, I have to continue to forgive myself over and over again for it. I don't, it's not a, it's not a one and done. It is going to come up as I start moving towards the things that I want to create in my life. And I have to continually tell myself that I am worthy, that I do forgive myself and that that choice does not define me. Would it help? Let's just call the race car driving. If you knew people who are doing that more personally, and then you realize that they have things they wish they didn't do or regretted? I think that would shine such a different light on it. And to give that perspective, I think that would actually be very powerful. Just in theoretically, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone accomplishing anything impressive that hasn't had things that they regret. You know, I mean, even people who pretend otherwise. I, I can tell you right now, just you saying that and opening up the door of that possibility took a weight off my shoulders on that. Just entertaining the idea of that and understanding the truth behind that. Because yeah. you're absolutely right. We Show me somebody on this planet who has not made a choice that they don't regret. You know, I challenge anybody to show me that. Yeah, and who's to, and, and who's to judge whose choices are worse than others. I mean, if you're not proud of it, then it's a bad choice. It, the, the scale and the the number, you know, that doesn't matter. If you're unhappy with it, you're unhappy with it. And speaking of race car drivers, if you want to dig into that a little bit more, um, Robert Herchevec from uh, the Herchevec Group in Canada, cybersecurity group, entrepreneur, he's on Shark Tank, really interesting guy. He's done that. He does that. He's a race car driver. But then he has a couple books and those books are full of things that he regrets and wishes he wouldn't have done. But those books are also full of things he said yes to and believed that he was good enough to do. And like going on Dancing with the Stars, becoming a race car driver, 
um, getting married again, like all of these different things, right? And uh, so that might be a, a good uh, memoir for you to to read to continue. I don't know much about Kilimanjaro, so I can't help you with that one. But you know what's you know what's so interesting, and thank you for that. I'm going to look into that book because I think it will be very beneficial. I can feel already using that principle that you just laid out. It doesn't have to be Kilimanjaro specific. I think once I, if I connected with just the race car driving, it would then ripple out to Kilimanjaro. I would, I could actually ripple it out to anything that I would want to do in my life. And it's just connecting, seeing that one person did something that I really want to do and they had regrets, but did, you know, were able to fulfill that dream anyway. I think that would be, That'd be huge. I think your next book, if you don't already have an idea, I've got one for you. It should be a handbook of these tactics we talked about, and you flesh them out more like very clearly and concise and walk people through developing these habits themselves. And I think it would be a fantastic plus one to your your existing portfolio and your existing book because as I was reading the book, I kept going, man, I just want to learn more. I only talked about a quarter of the things you mentioned in there that I wanted to learn more about, and we're we're uh, we're nearing the end of our our time together. And so I feel like you could really talk more about meditation, more about journaling, gratitude, self examination, your values, how to build values, how to have forgiveness for yourself, and then have forgiveness for others. We didn't even talk about forgiving others. I really would like to talk about that sometime. Um, and 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 really just taking uh, a blank canvas because a blank canvas doesn't mean rock bottom. A blank canvas doesn't mean you have to throw everything away. A blank canvas just means you are starting something from what you, you know, the canvas is, there was still work to build the canvas. The canvas didn't just materialize out of nowhere. The brushes didn't materialize out of nowhere. The paint didn't come from nowhere. Like things had to exist. There had to be a foundation. So everyone has a foundation already. The point is the blank canvas allows you to then go create something new. And then you can grab a brand new blank canvas and do another new thing. And you can keep doing that over and over and over again. That to me is a rich life is creating all those blank canvases, trying those new things. It's everything we've been talking about leaning into that resistance because the blank canvas is extremely daunting to stand before this blank canvas and try to fill it is extremely daunting. But I think you, I hope you'll be very happy when I tell you what book number two is. It is going to be exactly what you said. It's going to, I'm putting it together in my mind. I haven't started writing it yet, but I want it to be more of a definitive blueprint that somebody else can take and utilize these practices because this book was, it's, it's a memoir and it's my experiences through that which I still want to share in the next book, but I want it to be I want it to be a little more strategic and a little more tactical for somebody to be able to incorporate into their own life, regardless of where they are. That sounds great because going through your story, I was trying to put my own life over top of it and pull out the pieces of how I can incorporate these different things. And I know when you were writing the story, you were going through and learning a lot of these habits while you were writing the book, and that was helping you to do that. So seeing the, the the updated version with the the how to the guide I'll buy it and then I'll bring you back on the show and we'll talk about it again and uh, I think that would be really really great and then next time we talk we have to remember about forgiveness maybe just if you can if you can we talked about forgiving 
yourself a little bit, but what about forgiving others that have hurt you? It, do you have any thoughts on that as like a kind of a last thought? Forgiving others is so wickedly important for our own well-being. And one, uh, maybe I'll close in a sense with this, because I think this is so important. One of the biggest roadblocks that we have to forgiving someone else is the idea that we are absolving them of their of their behavior. And we don't forgive others for them. We forgive them for ourselves so that we're no longer walking around with this burden of hate or anger, whatever negative emotion that we have associated with that person that we're not forgiving, we're, we're, it's like carrying a, carrying a backpack with way too many things in it. But we can actually take those things out of the backpack. We can take that anger. And so that's why forgiving others is so important. It's not for them. And we're not, when we forgive someone else, we're not, we're not absolving them. It's, this isn't a get out of jail free card. You know, it's still, you did something wrong. And it, I'm saying that, but I, I forgive you for doing that thing that was wrong. And you have to, you have to tell them. No, I believe that we can do it internally. I believe there is a lot of value to telling the person, but I also believe that we can do it internally because sometimes there are situations where we can't forgive. What if somebody has passed? Somebody is no longer with us. And I think writing it down and reading it over and over again and really embodying it and understanding, again, this is not for the other person's benefit. This is for my benefit. And it is not selfish. It is actually quite an act of love and compassion because I no longer want to walk around with these negative emotions. To close, I do want to tell the listener, wherever you are, if you want to uh, get a copy of all the resources of everything we talked about during this conversation, you head over to quandall.com slash stanland. That's quandall.com slash stanland, and that's S-T-A-N-L-A-N-D. And I'll make sure I put a link to his book. I'll make sure I put a link to the other books we talked about. His podcast episode on the James Altucher show will be there. His TEDx talk will be there. I'll make sure I catalog and put everything there that we talked about. Um, but Craig, I, I enjoyed this a lot. You helped me a lot, so I really appreciate it. I know we'll we'll talk again because I, I just am very fond of the the work that you do, and you're so deliberate with how you spend your time and how you think and your models and everything. It's just very impressive. James, thank you for the opportunity. I absolutely love, I mean, this was just so much fun and I got so much value from you from doing this. And I want to thank you for helping me out with the, the Kilimanjaro and the race car driving. That was really, I, I swear you took a weight off of my shoulders. So I thank you for that. And I also want to acknowledge you for having the courage to launch this podcast and to give people this platform to share their stories and to share their practices so that we can try to incorporate them into our own lives and create that, that life that we want to live. So thank you. Yeah, for that. my pleasure.